Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. We've already raised enough to pay for 11 months of episodes. We're going to keep the fundraising drive going until we've got a full year covered. Please give if you can afford to. Today, Nate welcomes back John Anerson for a discussion of John Kay and Steppenwolf. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by John Anderson. And the book we're going to discuss is John Kay, Magic Carpet Ride, co-written by John Kay and John Anderson. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, Nate. Wonderful to be back. And so today we've got another uh, artist with Canadian links, although he's not born in Canada, but he did live there for a while. And also with a, a California connection. John, what is it with you with this Canadian-California thing? Well, you know, I... I... I started out really writing about Canadian artists who, you know, many, many of them had gone on to the States. And um, the idea was with my publisher I was working with at the time, Corey Press, the idea was to do a series of books that looked at, like John Kay and uh, David Clayton Thomas, Zal Yanovsky, um, Danny Doherty, looking at Canadians who found fame in the States in, you know, it largely in the 1960s. And the first of the books was on John Kay. And although the series didn't carry on, it for me was a, a real treat to spend time with John Kay and to write his story. And what a story it is. He's one of the pioneers of, of hard rock. Some say Steppenwolf was one of the bands that invented heavy metal. And he um, has a pretty unusual background. He's one of the only East German war refugees I know of making a major impact in the American rock scene of the 70s. Tell a little bit about John's story. How did he get all the way from what was once East Prussia and is now Kaliningrad? Well, that's what initially uh, drew me to his story, was reading about it in uh, Hit Parader magazine. Hit Parader was a cooler magazine than than 16 or these other kind of teeny bop oriented magazines at the time. And it, it was The Sparrow that I first read about when they were in New York in 66 recording. And there was a bit about John Cave, you know, fleeing from uh, you know the, the Russian onslaught. What happened was he was born in Tilsit, in East Prussia, which you know I believe now is Lithuania or part Lithuania and part Poland. And his father was a German soldier, not a not a Nazi. There is a significant difference. I mean, there were millions of German soldiers who weren't Nazis, um, and he died on the Russian front before John was born. Uh, his his John's mom was pregnant when he got shipped off to the Russian front. 
and um, his, you know, again, it, it, it's it's like you say, the strange story of, of a guy who grows up on the other side of the uh, Iron Curtain and ends up as the as the Soviets start to press uh, the Germans further, further back into Germany. John and his mother fled to uh, a town called Arnstadt and a little further south into East uh, Germany itself or what became East Germany, only to discover that they were, in fact, in when the war ended, a communist country. So his mother, through her, her her daring and her heroics, she and John managed to escape from uh, East Germany, which was sealed off from the rest of the world, barbed wire and fences and everything, uh, to uh, Hanover in West Germany and eventually in 19, about 1956 or so, or 57, make it to Canada. But the thing that, that prompted her move was the fact that she noticed when, when John was a, a toddler that every time he was outside in the sun, he would cry. So she got sunglasses for him, and that seemed to work. But she got a diagnosis in Arnstadt that he he was legally blind, and that if if ever she wanted to get any kind of proper you know medical treatment for his eye condition, they needed to get to the west to West Germany. So that that prompted uh, her daring move to get John to uh, well to to get the kind of medical attention that he had got. You know, when you see John Kay, you have this instant image of the leather-clad guy. You know, certainly. The, the long black hair, but always with the sunglasses. And it, it wasn't just a, 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 a cool accoutrement. He actually has to wear sunglasses because he is legally blind and he is, his eyes are uh, affected by, by sunlight. And um, it just became a part of the persona of who he is. But it, it, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a stirring story. What He tells it in a couple of songs, uh, one of them being Renegade, um, about uh, his escape with his mother. And let's talk about the symbolism a little bit, because he starts out the book with an intro chapter that talks about that, that his macho swagger, the black leather jackets, the sunglasses, the wolf associated with Steppenwolf and and his life as a road warrior. Tell us a little bit about sort of the persona or the mystique of the mature John Kay before we get into a story. Well, he was very successful in crafting this image. And again, a lot of it had to do with the fact that he did have to wear glasses. But the image fit the music. Steppenwolf was was hard and heavy rock music. And at a time in 1968 when there was a lot of changes going on, and the music scene was definitely changing to a harder rock, and the band's sound and his image in particular kind of set that scene well. But behind, when you take the glasses off him... um, he, he's a wonderful guy. He's easygoing. He's got a great sense of humor. He's as friendly as anyone you could ever meet. He has um, he and his wife Yuta have uh, have done a lot of work for uh, animal preservation and protection, for example, in uh, in Africa. But I I'll, I admit that when I first you know, when I first came down to his uh, estate, he was living in near Franklin, Tennessee, on his own lake, uh, or beside, not in the lake, but beside the lake. I, I, I was a little, you know, I just wasn't sure. I mean, he, he came out to meet me with the sunglasses and the, the darker clothes. <laughs> but, you know, I thought, oh, boy, what am I getting into? But he just turned into a sweetheart of a guy. And, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm proud today to, to call him a close friend. Well, cool. Let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is The Sparrow, which was a precursor of Steppenwolf that you mentioned, playing Karina Karina live at the Matrix in San Francisco, 1967.
And that was The Sparrow, John Kay's group that precursored The Steppenwolf, doing Karina Karina, the well-known folk song, live 1967 at The Matrix in San Francisco. And before we get John to Canada and America, I want to talk about his impressions of American culture. What kind of stuff did he notice? What music did he hear? And how did he get the idea he wanted to be a rock and roll singer? Well, he turned into, uh, as a, as a now living in Hanover in West Germany, his mother was a, a tailor, um, he tuned into American Forces Radio, which I think used to come out of Luxembourg, Radio Luxembourg or something like that. And he heard Little Richard for the first time. And it was music like he'd never heard before. And it really connected with him. And he decided he wanted to be uh, a rock and roll musician. And even though he couldn't speak any English, he would he made a cardboard guitar and would sing phonetically Little Richard songs holding this guitar in front of his mother's tailor, tailoring mirror. And um, that kind of connected him with rock and roll. And one Wanting to get to the United States. I mean, that's that's where rock and roll came from. That's where all the music that he loved and the artists that he loved came from. So there was a there was a connection already before he ever left Germany to uh, to rock and roll. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that he said from the beginning that he never thought rock and roll and German could go together, and that he never thought he could become a rock star and live out his dream in Germany. That he had to to get to America. That he couldn't. Bridge that language barrier, uh, and and nobody really did until the 70s. It's interesting that you know there, there's a generation of so-called kraut rock that comes along in the 70s, but and, and there was a few bands in the 60s, the Rattles, and a few others. But it's interesting that a major talent like Kay, to me, um, insisted on on coming to America and singing in English, and didn't want any truck with German guitar with German rock and roll. But, well, what's interesting though is that when he when they finally had success with Steppenwolf in '69 and they went to tour Germany, John was so excited because he could speak to to you know the fans at the uh, at the concerts in German because it still is, it was still his first language. But after a couple of shows, the promoter came up to him and said, "You have to stop talking German. These <laughs> kids these kids think you're an American rock star." And when you talk German to them and you're excited to be able to talk German to them, they get confused. They they don't know about your past. They just want you to be an American rock and roll star. So stop speaking German. <laughs> you can't go home again. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. And so when he gets to Canada, he finds a new scene. Like when he first gets to Canada, there, there's basically nothing going on in Toronto. But within a year and a half of his arrival, somebody big has come to town and started the beginnings of a scene. And I kind of view John Kay as a product of this Toronto scene as much of any of the California scenes that he also participated in. Who's big in Toronto and who follows in their way? Oh, that's Rompin' Ronnie Hawkins comes up from right. Arkansas. And he just set the whole Toronto music scene on its ear. I mean, we used to, there was a phrase, <laughs> Toronto used to be called Toronto the Good because it was so straight-laced. But Ronnie Hawkins just changed all of that. And yeah, you were correct. John Kay is a product of that, of what Ronnie Hawkins brought to uh, Toronto because all of a sudden, you know, sprang up, you know, a uh, uh, hundred different bands all kind of emulating that rhythm and blues and bluesy kind of sound that Ronnie Hawkins, uh, you know, brought to town. Yeah, and for those who don't know, uh, Ronnie's backup band was was led by Lee Von Helm and Robbie Robertson and Garth Hudson, the the Hawks, which became famous as the band back in Bob Dylan and as the solo act. But Kay has a a brief rock and roll trio that he puts together, buys an electric guitar and an amp, and finds a bass player and a drummer. But pretty soon he's drawn more into the acoustic folk scene. But it's not 
what I would call like the new Christy Minstrels or the Kingston Trio version of the folk scene. It's more the John Hammond Jr., Bob Dylan, um, you know, Dave Van Ronk, that kind of authentic country blues style. Who were the artists that influenced him and, and what kind of stuff did he start doing when he started playing solo? Well, I think his first rock and roll band that you mentioned was called John F. Kennedy and the Senators or something. And I guess that kind of name went out the window on November 22nd, 63, sure when did. President Kennedy was assassinated. But he was drawn to to country music initially, especially to Hank Williams. And um, country music is is deeply entrenched in Canadian music history. And, uh, you know, for, for even into the late 60s, you were more likely to, hit, to tune into a country music radio station in Canada than a rock and roll radio station and that music connected him connected with him on a on a different level i mean rock and roll is very visceral but the country music really connected with him in his soul and um he then discovered folk music was connected to country music and you know i did i did a, a course recently for the university of winnipeg on uh the the evolution of the folk boom in the 1950s into the 1960s and, you know, we think of, you know, the Kingston Trio and the New Christian Minstrels and Joan Baez and ultimately Bob Dylan. But there was, there was as you say, with people like John Hammond Jr., there was always a thread of blues and acoustic blues and country blues that ran through uh, the folk music boom of the 50s and 1960s, you know, including people like Len Chandler and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Lightning Hopkins. And once John heard that music, that, that was it for him. I mean, he still loved Hank Williams and would record some of his stuff years later. But for him, the blues really took him. It grabbed him. It it presented something to to him he'd never felt before, and so he started performing that. And Toronto had Yorkville, and Yorkville was like a, a, a junior version of Greenwich Village. And it was these these old you know three story Victorian homes in downtown Toronto, and about just about a square block area, Young Street and and Avenue Road, and and all around in there. And um, he began playing some of the coffee houses there, you know, along with alongside people like Ian and Sylvia, and even David Clayton Thomas was playing those kind of coffee houses. And a kid, you know, who drifted in from uh, Winnipeg named Neil Young was trying to get something going in the coffee houses. But he did make it to Buffalo when his family moved to Buffalo. His mother had remarried. And he played uh, coffee houses down there as well. And, you know, rubbed shoulders with people like Jackson C. Frank and, and Eric Anderson uh, and others. But he began to to perform to perform as, as a solo guy. And Joachim Fritz Krolodat doesn't quite have the same ring to it as John Kay. So he became John or Johnny Kay. And uh, it's funny that there were there were lots of people who knew him for years that didn't realize that his his real name thought he was John Kay. Yeah, it's interesting when you're describing one of his returns to Canada, they started calling him John from California, and he <laughs> didn't dissuade him. But tell us about that first California trip. Like he stops off at the Newport Folk Festival, but pretty soon he makes his way all the way out, uh, and he's washing dishes at the Troubadour and playing, you know, some of LA's well-known folk clubs. What what kind of scene did he find there? Well, he first went out there with a friend who had a like a, a sports car, a Triumph TR5, whatever they were called. And uh, they drove out to California, and, and he was quite impressed with it. So when he came back to, to Buffalo, where his parents were now living, they announced that, you know, unbeknownst to John, they were selling the house and moving to California. So he was quite excited about that because from what he saw down there briefly, uh, it, it, it attracted him. And the coffee houses were a little bigger, and, and uh, the, the scene was more supportive than he had seen in Buffalo 
or or Yorkville. So yeah, he started hanging around the clubs, and in particular a club called the New Balladeer, long since gone. But um, he shared a lot of stories with me about that, as did his good friend Morgan Cavett, who he met at the New Balladeer. But yeah, John started off working the coffee machine in the kitchen, and then every once in a while, they you know if there's some free you know, free time slot somewhere, they get up, uh, they let him get up and play a few songs. But he rubbed shoulders with a lot of interesting people like John Locke, who became the keyboard player in Spirit, Brian McLean, who was you know the second songwriter in Arthur Lee's Love Band, and David Crosby. And in fact, he and David Crosby kind of butted heads because Crosby would be up there singing. And this is pre The Birds, for The Birds. Crosby would be up there singing and John would be turning on the espresso machine and, and David would get mad. You know, every time <laughs> I'm on here, this guy's doing, the, you know, and they almost came to blows over that. But uh, it introduced him to uh, a lot of uh, people in the music biz there. And he sort of established himself as this solo blues guy before uh, returning to uh, Toronto. And one influence he picks up there is a guy named Hoyt Axton, who was a, a big factor on the West Coast folk scene. What did he get from from Hoyt? Well, he got a couple of songs, one of which was The Pusher. And it was a lesser known song of one of, one of uh, Hoyt Axton's albums. Uh, and Hoyt wrote it, of course. But uh, John put it into his set. And, and I mean, we're talking about 1963 or so, or 64. And still to this day, I mean, I don't know if John's still performing. I understand he's he's retired in the last year or two. But up until the time he retired, he played that song in every show he ever played. I mean, literally every, every, every set, every show he ever played from that date in 64 – on into the new millennium. It became very much a part of who he was and who Steppenwolf was as well, because they would record it. And that song kind of, um, I would say in any way, was emblematic of his career because he was never a junkie, but uh, the song very much associated with him. You know, I remember when I was with John writing the book and researching it and traveling on the road and uh, you know, to a few concerts and their tour bus, and and their their kind of one two three punch at the end of their sets was to do Hoochie Coochie Man, The Pusher, and Magic Carpet Ride, and then they'd come back and encore with Born to Be Wild. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, hard combo to beat. And let's go ahead and hear Steppenwolf doing Hoyt Axton's The Pusher. You know I smoked a lot of grass. Oh Lord. Popped a lot of pills But I've never touched nothing mm-hmm, That my spirit could kill You know I've seen a lot of people walking around With tombstones in their eyes And that was John Kay and Steppenwolf essaying Hoyt Axton's song, The Pusher, which, like you said, uh, St- John Kay learned from Hoyt Axton in 1964, seeing him in California, and made that uh, one of his signature songs for the rest of his career. But he's not, you know, he's made it to California. He's he's rubbing shoulders with Taj Mahal and David Crosby and all these people that are going to get big. But it's not quite time for John yet. And he goes back to the East Coast and he hooks up with a group. Um, tell us about the Sparrows and what they had been up to before they met John Kay. Well, like any other music scene, 
after February the 9th, 1964, uh, the whole British invasion and Beatles thing just took North America by storm, you know, and overnight there were, you know, 10,000 British invasion Beatley bands. And one of them in Toronto was uh, Jack London and the Sparrows. And they, Dennis, Dennis uh, McCrohan, who changed his name to Dennis Edmonton, was a guitar player in the band and uh, certainly recognized early on that the, the key to success is writing our own songs. And he was able to write a couple of songs that really sounded like, you know, British invasion tunes. And they actually put on British accents when they were when they were uh, out live, you know, fake accents. And Jack London's name was Dave Marden. And Bruce Palmer was in the band for a while. And he told me that they went to some restaurant somewhere and they're putting on their fake accents and they don't know anything about England. And they had something, they had dinner or whatever. And I guess the waiter came up and said, well, what would you like for dessert? And Bruce Palmer said, Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> thinking it was like a custard or something it's uh, kind of funny and you know for the longest time too uh bruce palmer from back in those days with jack london and the sparrows he listed his his birthplace as liverpool and so i mean even until the time of the buffalo springfield when he was an original member it still said bruce palmer birthplace liverpool no, born in Toronto, but um, when the, when the kind of the Beatley thing started to die down, and and Jack London, he's one of those guys who everyone was whispering in his ear, "You're the guy, you're the hit, you're the reason you're successful." He left the band for a solo career, and they stayed together as a, a, a four piece band. And uh, Art Air, I think, who was playing keyboards with them for a while before Goldie McJohn joined, he ran into John Kay at a club called the Half. The Halfbeat was a smaller Yorkville club, and by then, the, you know, the Sparrows were now playing on their own, and they released a single called Sparrows and Daisies. But uh, they said they had a bit of a reputation around town, but they didn't have a frontman or a lead singer. Nick St. Nicholas was doing a lot of the singing, as was drummer Jerry uh, Edmonton, and, and Dennis uh, Edmonton as well. But it was Art's idea to bring in um, John Kay to to. to try out. He saw him. He liked the blues playing that he was doing. Blues kind of by, by, you know, 65 or so blues was kind of cool to play. And Toronto had a long history of rhythm and blues and blues you know, dating back to Ronnie Hawkins. So they invited John to come along and, and sit in with them. And they liked what they heard. And they decided to to ask him to join uh, the band. And it was a good deal for, for John because the, the, they had a band apartment so he could move in there with them and have a place to live. And it was a steady income for him too. And it was also a period of time when John was starting to write more songs and and uh, the guys in the Sparrow weren't that good at writing songs but John John was getting better at it so it worked out best for everyone and very shortly after the S fell off of Sparrows and it just became Sparrow and they um, traveled around quite a bit they made a pretty serious run at it in New York and they both they had uh, shots at both Capitol and Columbia but nothing came of it why did they not click in New York well, they had they didn't have the right connections, I think, and um, so they weren't they weren't they weren't getting they did a couple of you know club kind of gigs, but uh, and some private gigs, private parties and debutante kind of parties and things. But they released a single on on Columbia called Tomorrow's Ship, and it you know it's the end of '66 by then, and things were starting to go a little more psychedelic, and it had a bit of a you know kind of an East Indian feel to it. But it wasn't John Kay singing it; it was uh, Dennis Edmonton who was singing it, and it, it just didn't go anywhere. And they did one more uh, session for uh, for the for the label in um, maybe you know I'm trying to think maybe this might have been RCA that they were doing it with in Toronto or in New York, and uh, they did another. Uh, 
session with a song that Jerry ended up singing called Green Bottle Lover. That's right. Yeah, I, think, I guess it was with RCA. And then the next sure day they had... Columbia? Um, it, it might have been Columbia, but because I, I thought when they went to California, they hook up with with um, David Kaprilak, who who was an A and R guy for Columbia then, and to do something for them. But they 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 may have been Columbia already. So you know, I guess yeah, Kaprilak's the guy who made Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, stars on Epic. And um, and, and, oh, they, and they hooked up with David Robinson. That's right. But uh, they ended up going to California because things just didn't happen for them uh, in New York. They didn't have the right management and connections. And and they get to L.A. just in time for the Sunset Strip riots to shut down all the happening clubs uh, that the scene that had made the birds and love and the doors and the seeds uh, and Buffalo Springfield pretty much comes screeching to a halt after these uh, riots, basically, basically police riots on, on the Sunset Strip. Mm-hmm. And so that forces them then to go to uh, Sausalito and play at a club called The Ark. How did they do in San Francisco in these halcyon times of late 66? They actually did fairly well. I mean, they were barely, they were barely making a living and living in a communal home in Mill Valley. But um, they kind of got a bit of a name in the kind of growing uh, psychedelic acid rock scene with, you know, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service, you know, and on and on. And they often appeared like third down on on bills at the Fillmore or uh, the Carousel Ballroom or some of these other uh, places. And so they they ended up recording one of their shows, and 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 years later that would be released. And I think just about the whole second side was this elongated version of the Pusher. But they they weren't a band that like the Grateful Dead or the Jefferson Airplane or Quicksilver, who would do twenty minute guitar solo kind of things and extended versions, with the exception of the Pusher. They had a little tighter sound to them, and uh, that sound was that they were doing was more like what was coming out of L.A. So they ended up going down, down to uh, L.A. Uh, in, uh, I guess we're talking about early 67, and played a club called The Galaxy, but the whole band kind of fell apart. The Galaxy was on Sunset Strip, uh, not either next door or close to the Whiskey A Go-Go. And I mean, just because they've been struggling for you know a couple of years, things just kind of fell apart. Bass player Nick St. Nicholas got an offer to join a band that was being backed by a, a financier who was able to you know give them money. And Nick, all of a sudden, you know, is driving an XKE Jaguar around. Uh, so he he left, and um, the band Sparrow fell apart. All right, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll hear about the lineup that John Kay puts together that finally puts him over the top. And so it was interesting. One thing I thought was kind of amusing about when the Sparrow breaks up is that uh, one of their problems was that they had four members uh, or three members uh, in immigration trouble. But John Kay was not one of them. He had managed to get, um, uh, I guess, a green card or some equivalent to that and could stay in the States as long as he wanted. So he does. And that's when he finds a new guitar player and also a guy, uh, Gabriel Meckler of ABC Dunhill. Lou Adler's record label that was best known for Mamas and the Papas, Barry McGuire and the Grassroots. And they play Gabriel Meckler, the demos from the Sparrow, and he likes what they're doing and commissions John to put together a new lineup and a new band. Tell us about the new members and the new name and, and the new package that he put together for ABC Dunhill. Yeah, as I said, things things fell apart uh, in, in, uh, in L.A. And, um, you know, 
John, uh, Dennis quit the guitar player. He just didn't want to be in the road anymore in band, so he was gone, guitar player. Nick left, as I said, to join this band, Time, and his T-I-M-E, Trust in Mankind Evermore, or something stupid like that. And so it was down to John Kay, Jerry Edmonton, and uh, organ player Goldie McJohn, who had replaced Art Air years before. And um, John had had met Jutta, his beautiful German emigre uh, wife in Toronto, and she'd come down to uh, L.A. to be with him. And she was working as a cocktail waitress. Uh, and that was kind of keeping keeping the two of them afloat. And they got a, a $90 a month uh, apartment above a garage on, I think, Fountain Avenue in Hollywood. But uh, they were just kind of kicking around. I mean, we wanted to try to get a band together. They'd met a young guitar player who was only 17 years old when they played the gig at the Galaxy. And he actually sat in with them. His name was Michael Monarch. And they put an ad in, uh, I guess, Wallach's Music, where, if, where if, you know, if you're looking for musicians, you stuck a note on the bulletin board looking for a bass player. And they found a guy named Rushton Morev or Morive, and uh, he came in and joined the band. Both both Rushton and Michael Monarch hadn't had a lot of experience beyond playing kind of garage-ish kind of bands. But the, the, the key to all of it was that living next door to them was this guy you said named Gabriel, who John has always called him Gabrielle. Uh, I thought it's, it just looks like Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel Mel- Meckler. And what connected them was initially Yuda who knew Gabriel's wife, who was now going under the name Jody, because they'd both been cocktail waitresses in Toronto. And so they reconnected again, and that's how John and Gabriel met. And John played John played Gabriel some of the uh, recordings and you know, demos and stuff that that um, the Sparrow had done. And as a, as an up and coming producer, Meckler was interested in what they had to do. And he he initially didn't seek to sign them. He said, "Well, you know." Work on and work on some material. Uh, you know, take some time, get tight as a band. You got two new guys in, work them in, and then I'll come and and see you again. And and they would they would rehearse downstairs in the garage at uh, below John and Yuda's uh, apartment. And during that time, uh, Dennis Edmonton was uh, songwriting, and he was he signed a song publishing deal with I think Uni you and I, and uh, had written a song about uh, a song inspired by his first car. He'd never owned a car before and his first car was a was a secondhand ford falcon and it's it's a little weak car there's nothing special about it. i remember them in, in the 60s there's certainly a, a mom and pop four-door kind of a car nothing sporty whatsoever the kind of the forerunner of the k car that chrysler came up with a decade later but um he was inspired by the freedom that driving a car brought him and the other, on the other hand, though, uh, he had a really tough landlady in the apartment he was in, and she wouldn't let him put plug his electric guitar, he had a Telecaster, into an amplifier. So he wrote this song acoustically on, on, uh, on a solid body guitar, which is pretty much no sound, uh, about that freedom. And he called the song Born to be Wild. And he'd been in touch with his brother, Jerry, who told him they had, had a new lineup and they were going to put a new band together. And Dennis said, well, I got a few songs. And he then he took the tape reel-to-reel tape and he went over to Jerry's place where Jerry was living and Jerry had a huge dog and, and throughout Jerry's life he loved big dogs and Dennis was scared of the dog so he just pushed the tape through the, the mail slot on the door and hoped that the dog wouldn't eat the tape 
<laughs> and and Jerry got the tape and he listened to a few of the songs on there and he 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 heard something you know fascinating about you know, the song Born to Be Wild even though it was you know slowed down and it was acoustic, but it had something and he took the song to the rehearsals for this new band that he and John and Goldie had, and it really was it was Michael Monarch uh, the guitar player who came up with the the fuzz tone riff that that really drives the song and Goldie with the you know, keyboards has a very percussive head but certainly a very percussive style and they crafted a great song from it and it's around that time that that uh, Meckler comes over again and says you guys are ready and gets them a recording contract with with Dunhill and uh, into record in late 1967 and the key thing about all that too was is I mean you they could have been stuck with uh, a recording situation with recording engineers and producers who had no sympathy for their sound. And that 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 was more often the case in rock and roll uh, in the 1960s and 70s was that you got stuck with the producer who had his or her own version and vision of what they wanted you to sound like. But in this case, working with uh, Richie Podolor and Bill Cooper as engineers, and really Richie was like um, like a second producer, and Gabriel Meckler, who, who really kind of helped nurture the sound of Steppenwolf and gave them the name Steppenwolf. Wolf uh, from the Herman Hesse book, um, the band was allowed to grow and develop its own sound. Now, a key to all of this is 1968. Okay, they recorded the album in like December of 67. At, at they first started out at a former Chinese restaurant that had been converted into a recording studio before then moving to another studio, but. 1967 was, you know, hippy-dippy-trippy, you know, wear flowers in your hair, come on, people love one another, you know, all that kind of stuff. But music changed in 68 in a big, big way. And I've taught courses on 1968, and it and it's changed. And it begins in, in January with the Tet Offensive. That's when, although the American public had been hoodwinked for, for years to this point, that they, they were winning. We were winning in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive showed that the, the uh, North Vietnamese, supported by the communist Chinese, pushed the Americans and the South Vietnamese forces back as far as Saigon. And Walter Cronkite went over to Vietnam, the most trusted man on the news, and he comes on TV and says, we can't win, we have to get out. And and the rest of the year was marked by violence. The My Lai massacre, uh, Martin Luther King assassinated, riots in major cities over that, violence, protests in France, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, you know, and on and on and on through the year. And people's musical tastes are always affected by the social conditions of the time. And nobody was hippy-dippy-trippy anymore. Everybody had this, this wanting to have tougher music. You know, representing the violence of the time. So Steppenwolf, along with you know Iron, uh, well Iron Butterfly and Agata Devita was that year. Uh, Blue Cheer, you know, Summertime Blues, uh, even the Rolling Stones with Jump and Jack Flash, and you know Deep Purple would release Hush and Kentucky Woman. Uh, all of this happened in '68. So Steppenwolf was was poised at the right time to release that music, and it it just connected on 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 a visceral label. Uh, vis a visceral way with uh, with audiences. Yeah, it absolutely did, and it's interesting to read Kay's account of the recording because, like you said, they moved uh, you know from United Western where. Mamas and the Papas had cut their tracks, found that that sound they were getting was too wimpy. So they go out to American recording studios in the San Fernando Valley and Polidor uh, and company, you know, help them get that raunchy sound. They're also helped out by kind of an unusual mix of cheap and off-brand equipment that they've <laughs> that they've acquired 
and and uh, get a you know the perfect Steppenwolf sound, and later they're going to struggle to 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 recreate that sound in the in the studio. I never quite get it when they have better equipment; they can never quite get that original Mozart raunchy, nasty, uh, overdriven sound that they get on that first album. And the first album, it's not like they released "Born to Be Wild" as the single initially out the gate. Like they they put out "Girl I Knew" as the first single, doesn't do much, but the album is moving units. And then uh, "Sookie Sookie" comes along as their second single. And let's go ahead and hear it. This is "Sookie Sookie" by Stephen. was Sookie Sookie off Steppenwolf's first album and that's one of the tracks that that helped uh, get that album going and before they even release Born to be Wild as a single the album's already in the top 10 and they're they're playing pretty high profile gigs and everything's clicking but then they finally decide to put out Born to be Wild but even then they're not sure it should be the A side and they put out uh everybody's next one as the as the flip side and push them both to djs so the djs decide that born to be wild is the hit it's so hard to believe that it was that difficult to figure out that born to be wild uh was the hit but that's that's what it did and then they were on their way uh played the hollywood bowl with the doors and the chambers brothers who were having a big hit with time has come today that year and then they hit the ballroom circuit and the psychedelic dungeons tell us about that ballroom circuit that had sprung up in the u.s in the wake of the san francisco scene well, it, just just to backtrack just a little bit, it's amazing how clueless Dun, Dunhill Records was in not recognizing Born to Be Wild as, as the, the single, the standout. I mean, I love the album, bought the album for sure after hearing Born to Be Wild on the radio. But it, it's it's far and away the best track on the album, and that's that's. Uh, that's amazing when you consider that there's a lot of great tracks on that album. But to put out The Girl I Knew, well, it had a bit of a psychedelic guitar line in it. So I guess they thought, you know, maybe that's the ticket before, you know, music was getting heavier. Uh, Suki Suki, Don Covey song, was was heavier. I mean, great. Almost a Jimi Hendrix feel to the to the, to the cording in, in that song. And that certainly helped drive the album. But, you know, what's interesting is that Dunhill had said to the band, if if Born to Be Wild, the third single doesn't hit, we are done. You know, we're, we haven't invested that much money that we can, you know, when we can afford to lose you. And back in those days, I mean, record labels could sign 10 artists. And if nine failed, but one succeeded, the success of the one would pay back for the cost of recording the other the other nine. And that was the case, certainly, with Steppenwolf. But how can you not realize and recognize that Born to Be Wild was a great hit? But then again, if they're listening to the album in late 66, early 67, and the and the music scene is starting to evolve to a harder rock sound. By June, when Born to Be Wild was released as, as the third single, we were already listening to harder rock on on the radio. And as I, as I said, summertime blues and hush and uh, the, these other songs from that period of time 
had led the way for for a harder rock sound. And the whole yeah, John Youngs uses the word psychedelic bunkers when he talks about some of these big ballrooms. <laughs> and it was the idea that um, again, and I've, this is the third time I'm going to use it. This music was very visceral. You felt it. It wasn't, you know. You know, psychedelic music in the sense of your mind is tripping, but your body is frozen. This was music that got into your body uh, and and soul as well. So promoters realized that that the San Francisco model of you know having three you know two or three thousand people in an old giant dance hall uh, was a great idea. And there were lots of you know these old dance halls from the you know the 30s and 40s that were lying dormant all over the United States. So that became a major source of uh, gay for Steppenwolf and for others, you know, starting it in 68, you know, and, and, and Cream is, is coming over and touring these these ballrooms and Jimi Hendrix and that sort of thing and, and Iron Butterfly. So it did it did open up that whole gig scene. And Steppenwolf, I mean, they were they were the rock and roll warriors at the time. I mean, John John has described, you know, we, we'd he said we'd swoop into town in our in our private plane or you know first class on a regular flight, yeah, and and they would just lay waste to the town, to the girls and the booze and the drugs and the partying, and play before fifteen thousand screaming fans get in their plane, swoop off. It was like Genghis Khan, you know, invading a, a community. They lived that lifestyle, and John. John used to carry a case with him, one of these kind of you know metal cases that you see, chrome looking, and in it he'd have uh, a bottle of vodka and a bottle of Kahlua because he liked black Russians. And then when you lifted sort of that out, on the bottom underneath it was you know all sorts of pet pills, uppers and downers, and condoms. So that was his traveling <laughs> case with him there. They lived the rock and roll lifestyle for sure. Yeah, it sounds like it. And and but part of the rock and roll life cycle lifestyle is that treadmill of record, tour, record again. Tell us about their uh second album, Steppenwolf the Second, and was it as easy to put together as the first album? Well, you know, back then uh the standard recording contract was two albums a year and four singles. And and you know, the Beatles, everybody, you know, signed those kind of contracts. And in between you you toured, and you had new publicity photos. You did interviews with you know silly magazines and things, but it was it was very much a treadmill. And once a record label finds a sound that becomes a hit from you, then they expect you to emulate that until it doesn't sell anymore. And and again, that's record people back then, as John used to say, they're shoe salesmen who kind of ended up moving into record sales but they didn't know anything about music but they, if they saw money then they wanted to milk that uh, that cash cow but you alluded to it earlier when you talked about the equipment that they had Goldie had uh, an old Lowry organ and, and Lowry is not way up there with Hammond or any others it's a cheaper model and various amplifiers and, and Michael Monarch had I think a Fender Esquire which is like a junior version of a Telecaster and from this pile of of junky equipment they crafted an amazing sound but well, obviously they started making a lot more money after that first album between the two albums and they went into the recording studio and now Goldie's got a Hammond and a Leslie Speaker and they've got a, a deal with Rickenbacker guitars and, and different kinds of amplifiers and things. So the equipment was better, but they kind of lost that edge. They kind of lost that sound. Now that's not to say they all of a sudden turned into Buck Owens and his buckaroos and twangy guitars, but they um, – 
yes, they got a they got a, a cleaner sort of a sound, but they lost a bit of the rawness. But they still sold millions of records and concerts all over the world. But that album produced, you know, Magic Carpet Ride, which it could be argued is probably a better known song associated with Steppenwolf, you know, through the, the you know the, the lens of history than than Born to Be Wild was, because Magic Carpet Ride was a was a bigger hit than than Born to Be Wild, and they got a great sound on that. But uh, you know, success. <laughs> with success, they lost a little bit of the edge to what they were doing. It's interesting that that uh, John had a concept for the second side of that album, where he wanted to trace the history of popular music, from you know somebody just banging on a drum, uh, all the way through to the different evolutions and styles of music. But in the end, it it even though they kind of did a little bit of that on the second side it didn't have the same sort of a it didn't live up to the concept that that John had for it but um they still were at the forefront of this hard rock music in 6 cuz that came out in the fall of 68 uh Wolf the second and Magic Carpet Ride became a hit i think in november of 68 so they were still riding riding that Magic Carpet Ride and one of the unusual things about Magic Carpet Ride was the songwriting of it. And that's the only song where Russia Moreve, the bassist, gets a, a songwriting credit. And he's the genesis of the song, basically wrote the backing track that then John Kay went home with a full band demo of the backing track and then writes the lyrics, Magic Carpet Ride. What happens to Russia Moreve after this? Why does he not continue to become a bigger and bigger musical force in the band? Yeah, it's it's kind of a sad situation, and I know that when I spent time with John interviewing him, he he really kind of lamented that fact that 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 Russian kind of fell off the radar. He he became some way convinced that an earthquake was going to destroy California, and he his girlfriend had to get away, so he just kind of disappeared. But he was uh, they were in the studio recording uh, tracks for the Seven Wolf the Second, and he had this bump 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 bump. Bump, you know, bass line, and and John thought that was pretty cool. And it's interesting that that Dennis Edmonton was hanging around with him, and he kind of put in guitar chords to fit that, although he doesn't get credit for it. But you're right, John. John thought, well, this is cool, this is interesting. Let me get that on tape, take it home, and I'll come up with some lyrics for it. And John Kay almost exclusively writes alone. I mean, that's just his thing. He's a good musician and he has a good sense of melody and he's great with lyrics. So it's very rare to see a collaboration. But in this case with Magic Carpet Ride, you know, Rushton gets uh, gets uh, a co-credit for writing that. But John was listening to that track of that that bass line and maybe Dennis's guitar on it. Uh, and one of the first things he bought when he, you know, the first flush of money with Steppenwolf was that he bought... Uh, a, a decent stereo. And he sat between the two speakers of the stereo listening to this, you know, rough tape. And it came up the lines, I like to dream, you know, right between my sound machine and the sound machine is a, is a stereo, you know, and something about a trip in the night and a place that goes just right. All, you know, all of it came together from just sitting there with his new stereo and listening to this, this bass part. And it was, although the lyric is kind of trippy, uh, the backup music is, is, is solid hard rock. Yeah, no doubt about that. And it becomes, uh, you know, rock and roll gold, immortal, immortal classic that each of their first two albums produces a, an incredible hit, a single for the for the record books, but they lose Rush to More Eve and bring back Nick St. Nicholas, who uh, comes <laughs> as one of my favorite rock and roll minor characters. I love his name and Goldie St. John uh, or McJohn. And um, 
and the combination of the, their relationship with John Kay ends up becoming kind of tragic comedy. It, it, it's not really good for anybody's career, but it is kind of amusing in a grim sense. But then they lose Michael Monarch, the, the young guitar player that, that wrote the riff for Born to be Wild, and kind of lose their way. The third album, At Your Birthday Party, uh, does well, but it doesn't go gold. Um, and and kind of stiff, so that there's a lot of pressure on them for their fourth album, Monster. How did they respond to that? What what did John K do on that album, Monster? Oh, and stuff. Before I do that, I got a cue, and this is um, this is Monster from Step One's fourth album. that was monster the title song from Steppenwolf's fourth album and so tell us about that that concept album what they were trying to do and how they were trying to get their career back on track with monster john john k is a keen uh history buff and he knows a lot of history i mean he's 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 reads a lot of history and he in monster he was putting together a song that really tell uh, tells the story of uh the united states you know, talking about the, the formation of the 13 colonies and the revolution and pushing westward and then, you know, pushing the Indians off the land. And and we've created this monster and this monster is the government. And, you know, this is this is uh, 1969. You know, the Vietnam War, 500,000 American soldiers are in Vietnam. It's the it's the number one news story every night on TV. And he uses the imagery of the monster to talk about how the government has become too big and it's destroying us and now it's got involved in a war over there. You know, no matter who wins, we know we can't pay the cost. It's brilliant. It really is a brilliant song and it shows how well John Kay can synthesize all of this stuff into a song. It's a long song, but uh, it, it really was something he had been, you know, thinking about for a while. And some of the other songs like Draft Resistor, on, uh, th- those are songs that are dealing with the Vietnam War, Don't Step on the Grass, Sam, you know, the, these kind of things from earlier that, that dealt with, you know, the, the ridiculous drug laws in the United States. I mean, John was always a, a, a rebel in that way, kind of an outlier. He was he was part of the counterculture, but but even further in that he was able to look at it and and put it and understand it and see the negatives uh, in it. I've, I, I taught American history. I'm Canadian. I teach taught Canadian history, of course, but I also taught American history. It's an optional course in grade 10. And uh, I taught it for 30 years. And every year when we get into the 1960s, I would play Monster. And I would give the kids the lyrics and we listen to the song and then we would talk about it afterwards. How, how a lot of the things they'd already learned, 13 colonies, blah, 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 and how John put it all together in, in that song. It, it's, it's brilliant. And when I saw them do that live, they hadn't released the album in Canada yet. And they came and played September of 69 at uh, the Winnipeg Arena, you know, I don't know, seven or 8,000 people. And even though I'd not heard the song before, I just I, I, I sat and listened and it just absolutely blew me away. Now, um, just to step back just a little bit, you, you mentioned about Nick St. Nicholas. He <laughs> he's a colorful rogue. 
He's the silver-tongued devil. He is such a character, but not a character in a funny kind of way. He's a fascinating guy. And, you know, he screws up everywhere with everything he does, but he's just so intriguing. And and having the chance to sit with Nick St. Nicholas and Dennis Edmonton and Jerry Edmonton, you know, in a suite in Santa Barbara in uh, on Canada Day, 1993, and they're all three of them, you know, Canadians, although Nick was born in Hamburg. Um, it's just, you know, Nick is talking along with them a good time and sharing stories, blah, blah, blah. And then after it's all done, after about four hours, you know, and they all leave. And about an hour later, they get a phone call. Like, oh, listen, don't don't believe everything those other guys said. I could tell you, you know, just trying to get his own personal viewpoint in there. <laughs> you know, and here's the interesting thing, too. This is a bit of a side thing about Nick. You know, I said to him, you know, he would eventually get a group called World Classic Rockers. And it's, you know, various alumni from hit bands. OK, and they play, you know, they play private gigs and conventions and whatever. Um, but I said to them, so you know, what are you up to now musically, Nick? I went over there, and he said, well, I got this uh, this trio of uh, of three women, and they're singing Christian rock, but they they wear uh, bustiers and garter belts and stockings. <laughs> and <I'm> thinking, <laughs> Wait a minute, <laughs> we, we got the sex and God. We got you know just all mixed up together. Just the the ultimate hustler, and you know it it, uh, it was fascinating. To kind of get to know him a little better, but you also <laughs> alluded to the fact that uh, Samuel at your birthday party really didn't didn't connect, um, and the band was kind of it was fragmenting. Then Nick had just joined, Rushton had left, Nick had joined, and by that point, uh, Michael Marek was losing interest. And one of the saddest interviews I did for that book, and there's always for every book, there's always a sad one, and it was interviewing Michael Monarch, you know, again in in 1993, long after Steppenwolf and long after Detective and Widowmaker or whatever. No, he wasn't a Widowmaker, but Detective, and he was living in uh, literally a bedsit apartment, which is like one room with a bed and a, the hot plate and that sort of thing. Uh, in a, a dumpy little four four room apartment block behind the Whiskey A Go Go, and there he was, a little, little bed in there, and a little table and a kitchenette, and against all the walls were these giant Marshall amplifiers that he guys he used for performing, and he he was embarrassed. He really was uh, about the situation he was he was in now. And he admitted it was drugs, and he went right back to Steppenwolf, and he said, you know, I, if I'd have been a little older, if I'd have been a little smarter, um, I would have stayed in that band, because we, we had something going. But he got a little too much ego at age, you know, by that time he's 18 and 19, and, and too many drugs, he said, and he, he blew it. And it, it's only, you know, decades later that he, he cleaned himself up and, and recognized all the mistakes that he had made in, in his life. But when you listen to that first album, you realize how important he was to the sound of that band. Now, the guitar player they got in for Monster, uh, Larry Byram, was a great guitar player, but he didn't have the kind of distorted fuzz tone sound that, that, uh, that you know, that Born to be Wild had, that, that uh, Michael Monarch had in the band. But, you know, to take it back to Monster, I really thought it was unfortunate that the band at that point didn't, didn't get the, the, the credit and the sales and the attention that that album deserved. I think if a lot of the kind of hippies who maybe weren't into Steppenwolf and the black leather and all that, if they had a chance to listen to Mon Monster, uh, it might have been a different story for the band. 
Yeah, there's uh, just sort of a pattern of diminishing returns uh, through their discography. And then by the, the, you know, they break up in their early 70s. John Kay does a couple solo albums. They get back together. Steppenwolf to kind of the, the promotion of those solo albums and Steppenwolf gets blended together. They come back and then they break up again. And then Nick St. Nicholas and Goldie McJohn um talk John Kay into letting them put out a version of the band or perform as a version of the band called the New Steppenwolf. And and pretty quickly, it's just Nick St. Nicholas with a bunch of ringers doing what John Kay feels is a disservice and a desecration of the Steppenwolf name. So how does John Kay get his name back and, and restore his claim to the Steppenwolf? Well, just to talk, just talk, just talk a bit about the first time Steppenwolf broke up. John Kay released a solo album, '73, I think it was, and it was called uh, "Forgotten Songs and Unsung Heroes." And on that, he goes back to the music that influenced him in the early days. He's got some bluesy stuff on there. He's got uh, a cover of of a uh, Hank Williams song, cover of a Hank Snow song, you know, kind of the the singing ranger, the Canadian uh, country singer. It's a brilliant album. It really is, and it's one of my favorite albums. And it's really sad that that not enough people bought that album. That John could have sustained a solo career because um, what people wanted was still John Kay, you know, Mr. Hard Rock, Mr. Born to Be Wild, Mr. Magic Carpet Ride. Here we was he was singing, you know, "You Win Again" by by Hank Williams, and "I'm Moving On" by Hank Snow, and you know, "Bold Marauder" by Richard and Mimi Farina. It's a roots album that he really needed to do. And the second solo album, My Sport in Life, again, it, it was a little more contemporary in, in singer-songwriter kind of sound and style. But when he was touring, uh, he was getting you know promoters saying, well, you know, I can give you X amount of dollars for John the John K band, but if you're stepping with, well, wow, I mean, that's Y and Z together uh, kind of thing. And, and he was looking to main, make a living, of course. And, um, you know, you're always looking for you know, the ego and, and the attention. But what the catalyst for him, I mean, they did Steppenwolf back together again. They had Bobby Cochran on guitar and George Biondo on bass. Um, those three albums they did for a small label called Mum Records or Mum's Records uh, didn't do a hell of a lot. And they didn't get any big hits out of it. So they folded it again. And the name still had cachet. And there was a promoter kind of getting started in Florida. And I won't mention his name because he probably would sue me if he's still alive. But what he, his stick was to put together a guy or two from name bands and use the name. You know, if, if the name was dormant, use it. So he gets a hold of Goldie and Nick and says, why not? Yay, you guys go out as Steppenwolf and we'll throw a band together and, and we can milk this thing. And that's literally what they were doing was milking the name. And uh, it was a terrible band. They were stoned out guys who you know were barely even born when, when Born to be Wild was a hit. And uh, they had a guy who looked like John Kay with a little mustache and the hair. And it offended John and it offended Jerry. And Jerry and John were the last ones to own the name. And they, they, they fought a battle. I mean, literally gig to gig, sending out advertisements and sending out threatening letters to promoters saying, these guys aren't Steppenwolf and they don't legally have the right to the name. And in the end, it ended up where they negotiated a deal with, uh, where Jerry and John negotiated a deal with Nick and Goldie, whereby they would lease them the name, not give it, lease them the name. But Goldie and John had to pay Jerry and John. Goldie and Nick rather had to pay Jerry and John. I think it was like fifteen or twenty percent of their gross. Okay, if they made five thousand that night, then fifteen percent or twenty percent of that. And if they failed to pay that over a three-month period, they would lose the right to use the name forever. 
And more importantly, they would lose all their Steppenwolf royalties. And back then, nobody was re-releasing any music. There was no oldies or classic rock radio or any of that kind of stuff. They were just old songs. And so Nick and Goldie figured, oh, come, we're going to make billions from this. And so they agreed it. And then in the end, they, they uh, failed to meet the agreement and had to forfeit the name and forfeit all any or any future royalties as well. But it was it was a tough battle. And it was a battle over several years. They even took out full page ads in Billboard magazine telling promoters not to book a band under the name Steppenwolf because it's not John Kay. And it's not nothing to do whatsoever with uh, the legacy and the name of Steppenwolf. So once they got the name back, John decided, well, I might as well go out as John Kay in Steppenwolf. Jerry was interested. Jerry Edmonton, the drummer, bear from Sparrow Days. But John realized that he could hire younger musicians. And and see, if, if Jerry's in the band, he's got to give Jerry an equal cut to John. So Jerry was kind of cut out of the deal, but he still owned the name, so he still got a piece of the action uh, in a small way. But you know, in the early 1980s, John Kay's going on as John Kay and Steppenwolf, and they released, you know, a, a half dozen albums, and they toured for, you know, 20 years or more, giving the crowds what they what they wanted. Yeah, and it was uh, basically a long valedictory for John Kay and Steppenwolf, and and kind of a, a long victory tour that went on for a couple decades, and and pretty honorable way to go out. It assured him of a good living and a connection with his fans and a well-earned connection with the fans. And so John Anderson's been my guest and the book is Magic Carpet Ride, uh, the John K. Autobiography. John, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Nate. Anytime. It's a pleasure. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Michael Corcoran to discuss pioneers of Texas music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.